Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. I went to the crossroads, fell down on money. This episode is part two of The Devil and Robert Johnson. At the light above I'm racing up, say poor Bob if you please. In part one, we cover the lesser-known early years of Robert's life, the years that help us to understand him as a human being, and not this myth that people always project on him. On this episode, we will finally tackle the myth of the crossroads. Where was Robert when he disappeared for those six months? Why does he sing so many songs about the devil? And what led him to being murdered at 27 years old? as his recording career was just starting. If you have not listened to part one yet, please pause this episode and scroll down to episode 15 in the podcast feed. The Devil and Robert Johnson, part one. Check that out first. Everything we are about to cover will make much more sense and you will find it resonates more emotionally. Without further ado, The Devil and Robert Johnson, part two. Chapter 1. Me and the Devil. Me and the Devil was walking side by side. I'm going to beat my woman until I get satisfied. So, what do you think? Did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil? Looking at his life up until this point, he certainly had every reason to. Reasons such as he never had a stable home, he never knew who his real father was, he desperately wanted more than just the plantation life, he wanted to be the greatest blues musician of his time, he tragically lost his first wife, Virginia, and their unborn child, he was denied the opportunity to be a father and husband with Virgie Smith, the mother of his second child, and he was ostracized by half the people he met as doing the work of the devil. Could you really blame him? Of course, we shouldn't sugarcoat things here. He wasn't a perfect human being either. He had heavy drinking problems, for one. His friend Wink Clark had this to say about him. For Robert, one of the most life-changing lessons was learning how to drink. Did he drink? You ought to ask how much did he try to drink? He tried to drink up all that corn whiskey was made, but he never would get too drunk to play his guitar. But he sure drank it. He drank a lot. He drank all night. Just about like you see these women sipping these Coca-Colas. That's just the way he would do a bottle of whiskey." Unquote. You could say that came with the territory of playing the juke joints. Or you could say that came with the personal baggage he carried from his life experiences. How much hardship can a person withstand. Maybe after all this, at the age of 22, he decided he wasn't going to deny the association with the devil any longer. 
Maybe he said to hell with it, and instead he leaned in to that association. It was around this time that he began to feel a compulsion to write his own music too. No doubt he had something to say by this point in life. These are the songs that he would perfect into compositions and record a few years later, in 1936 and 1937, one year before his death. Just look at the various lyrics of these songs. Early this morning, when you knocked upon my door, I said, hello Satan, I believe it's time to go. Me and the devil was walking side by side. You may bury my body down by the highway side, so my old evil spirit can get a Greyhound bus and ride. She's a kind-hearted woman, she studies evil all the time. Beatrice got a phonograph, and it won't say a lonesome word. What evil have I done? What evil has the poor girl heard? There's a clear pattern for leaning into the darker aspects of the human soul in his music. This is honestly one of the things that has always drawn me to his songs, and very likely what has drawn millions of other fans. He doesn't shy away from the dark aspects of life. I think we can learn a lot about Robert through his lyrics. There's a lot of things people often misinterpret, and there's a few hidden references to African folk magic that most people miss. First, when Robert uses the term ramblin' in a song, he doesn't mean rambling in the way we use it. This is a blues term meaning someone who wanders from town to town and lover to lover. To be a ramblin' man is to live the life of the itinerant bluesman. The frequent appearance of the devil in Robert Johnson's songs isn't an anomaly in blues music. When you take a bird's eye view at the songs from this time, you realize something strange. The most recurring character in the blues is the devil. More than Jesus, more than God, the devil and the blues are inseparable. For example, here are some blues song titles with the respective artist's name, which were recorded in the 30s and 40s. I've been dealing with the devil, Sonny Boy Williamson, She Belongs to the Devil, Washboard Sam, Devil Got My Woman, Skip James, Done Sold My Soul to the Devil, Clara Smith, Devil's Got the Blues, Lonnie Johnson. And it gets even more interesting when you listen to them. Check out the lyrics of Lonnie Johnson's song, Devil's Got the Blues, which was strangely enough released in the same year as Robert Johnson's death. 1938. The blues and the devil is your closest friend. Blues and the devil is your two closest friends. The blues will leave you with murder in your mind. That's when the devil out of hell steps in. The blues and the devil is your two closest friends. The blues will leave you with murder in your mind. That's when the devil out of hell steps in. Damn, if that's not a dark and heavy lyric. There were a lot of writers in the 60s and 70s that fixated on this Robert Johnson's Devil's Bargain myth, but they got it all wrong. They tried to connect the dots through his lyrics as evidence of this theory. They were trying to sell a narrative and people ate it up because it makes for a damn good story. 
An amateur blues musician sells his soul to the devil at the crossroads and comes back a musical genius. In reality though, what these writers were doing is only showing how little they understood about the blues and completely disregarding its cultural heritage. A major example of this is the confusion surrounding some of the supernatural symbols in Robert Johnson's lyrics. References to dust, dirt, stones, brooms, objects related to hoodoo and conjure folk magic, which end up meaning nothing but metaphors to many listeners, but which carry meaningful associations to black listeners of that time. Hoodoo is a form of ancient African folk magic, which came over with the original African slaves to America, passing down in family lines all the way up to the present day. Hoodoo works with the energies of spirits and ancestors, and it can be used equally for love and money spells as it can be for inviting misfortune into the life of an adversary. This is referred to as closing someone's roads. In the book, Old Style Conjure, the author Star Kassas writes, What exactly does it mean to close someone's roads? It basically means to block them, to stop them from moving forward in life. The crossroads can be worked with to stop promotions, to stop judgments in court, to stop slander, to stop an enemy from moving against you. The list goes on and on." Unquote. The essential ingredient in this kind of work is dirt, often collected from places of power, like crossroads, graveyards, banks, and police stations. The dirt from these places is believed to carry the spirit energy of the many lives that pass through these areas, and when mixed with crushed herbs or photographs of your target, it can be made into dust or powders, which you apply with a broom near where your target is known to walk. Starkasas goes on. I have been known to wait until the wee hours of the morning when most folks are sleeping to take my broom and dustpan to the center of the crossroads on a dry road before the dew falls and sweep some dust up. Most of the time, I take it from the corners. I was taught that the crossroads represent the numbers four or five. Four is represented by the four corners of the crossroads, and the number five comes from the four corners and the spirit that sits in the center of the crossroads. Some folks say that spirit is the devil, I believe it is St. Peter, and he holds the keys to the pearly gates of heaven, which are all the roads." Unquote. When I first listened to Robert Johnson's Dust My Broom, I had no idea what he was talking about. Why is he going to sweep with his broom from the second he gets up? I could never figure this out. And then as I started learning about hoodoo, it was so obvious. He is preparing a spell. He has crushed ingredients into a powder and is dusting them onto his broom, possibly to curse the man that's loving his girlfriend. In another chapter, Starkasas writes, As I said, the base of all conjure powders is dirt from powerful places, along with powdered herbs and ashes from either scripture or photos mixed in. You have to remember that in the old days, the yards were not all grassy knolls, most were nothing more than dirt that turned to mud when it rained. It was easy back then to dust someone's yard or door stoop because the powder just blended in with the yard. That is also why most folks swept their yard once a week on Saturdays, to make sure that anything that was dropped was burned in the burn pile. 
the song Hellhound on My Trail. Without a doubt, one of Robert's greatest masterpieces. It stands out for its subject of a bluesman always being chased by something supernatural. And it stands out for Robert's plaintive wail, which is in contrast to his other songs. In this one, he seems undone, vulnerable. Robert wrote this song in that special period between 1932 and 1937. third verse, he sings, You sprinkled hot foot powder all around my door, all around my door. It's another reference to hoodoo work. Hot foot powder is the American name for an African powder recipe, which is used to send people away. One way to interpret the lyric is Robert is accusing a current lover, or ex-lover, of sprinkling this magic spell around his doorstep, preventing other women from entering Robert's life, which means, according to him, he has to find his love on the road while rambling. The term rider also shows up again, which refers to a lover. In this context, we can also look back on Dust My Broom and see it as Robert waking up in the morning and dusting away any spells that someone may have put down in front of his walkways. Then there is his song, Stones in My Passway, This entire song seems to reference a spell being cast on Robert. Someone has placed stones where he tends to travel, likely the entrance or exit of his home. He sings, I got stones in my passway, and all my roads seem dark at night. I have pains in my heart, they have taken my appetite. My enemies have betrayed me, have overtaken poor Bob at last, and there is one thing certainly, they have stones all in my pass. I got stones on my pathway And my roads seem dark at night I got stones on my pathway And my roads seem dark at night I have pains in my heart They have taken my appetite Robert Johnson's stepsister, Anya Anderson, confirms that he knew all about hoodoo. She mentions in her book, Brother Robert, that hoodoo was in his vocabulary. In the book, Up Jump the Devil, the author says, Foot track magic, a distinctly African form of laying down tricks, 
is accomplished when an arrangement of objects, called a mess, is laid out in a pattern, line, crossmark, or crossroads symbol. The mess is positioned where the intended victim will walk over it, and is intended to hurt or poison the victim through their feet. The intent is physical harm, unlike much other magic that affects love, fortunes, or luck. Robert's lyrics do claim that the Passway Stones did affect his health when he sings, I have pains in my heart, they have taken my appetite. Unquote. These references fill Robert's songs because they were part of the day-to-day life of the Mississippi Delta at that time. And it works in two ways. You can see these references as personal to Robert. Perhaps he practiced hoodoo, and without a doubt, knew folks personally who did. Or you can also see them as Robert catering his lyrics to the audience he knows will be listening, on records and in juke joints. Folks who believe in and practice this tradition. After all, he is a songwriter, and an artist with an intended audience, who will know exactly what he's talking about. Then there's the song, Come On In My Kitchen. And there's no other song like this. It just captures you with its striking intimacy. There's something magical in the mood that he establishes. At times, you can hear Robert whispering and humming to himself, like you're sitting right there beside him. This intimate style of playing, it wasn't heard on record for years to come. Robert seemed to have this understanding of the technology and what that little microphone could pick up. So he didn't feel the need to belt out his singing and all these songs. Many other recordings of blues songs from this time period have musicians just singing loudly in an unnatural way. Almost as if they thought the person listening to the recording wouldn't be able to hear them. But here, in Come On In My Kitchen, Robert controls the dynamics like a seasoned master. Robert's friend, Johnny Shines, recalled that in 1938, during their last trip together, he noticed the effect this song had on a crowd. He said one time in St. Louis, we were playing one of the songs that Robert would like to play with someone once in a great while, Come On In My Kitchen. He was playing very slowly and passionately, and when we quit, I noticed no one was saying anything. Then I realized they were crying, both men and women. There's a notorious lyric in this song, which has both confused and fascinated blues listeners for a hundred years. It's when Robert sings, Ah, she's gone. I know she won't come back. I've taken the last nickel out of her nation sack. You better come on in my kitchen. It's going to be raining outdoors. Ah, she's gone. I know she won't come back. I take the last nickel out of her nation sack. You better come on in my kitchen. It's going to be raining out. 
The general consensus is that Native American tribes were referred to as nations back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And a nation sack was a small pouch made of cloth or leather worn by a Native American woman under her dress. It was adopted by hoodoo practitioners first in Memphis. Women would have it tied under their dress near their pubic area. A woman's nation sack often contained money, but also magic items like feathers or herbs. If it was to keep a man faithful, it was often items related to him, a lock of his hair, fingernail clippings, or another possession of his. The nation sack was a very private, personal, and magical item in a woman's possession. When Robert says he has taken the last nickel out of her nation sack, he has admitted to violating two taboos. He has broken the privacy of the woman by opening the most personal possession of hers, and he has stolen money from inside of it. It's a violation even worse than a man rummaging through a woman's purse in today's standards. But in all of these songs, it's rare that Robert is being literal. He's a poet, after all. Since it would be a common term at that time, he could be using it symbolically. That's why he says, she's gone, I know she won't come back. He's done something so offensive to her that he might as well have taken the last nickel out of her nation sack. When we begin to appreciate the rich cultural heritage that gave birth to this music tradition, only then do we really understand these incredible songs. And then there's Crossroad Blues, the song that's been covered by Eric Clapton, Elmore James, John Mayer, and countless other blues musicians who pick up the guitar, making it an undeniable blues standard. This is the song that those misguided historians of the blues like to point to as evidence for the Devil's Bargain story. It is Robert Johnson's confession to his deal with the devil. Or is it? Chapter 2 In Steps Robert Johnson So how did the myth that links Robert Johnson and the Devil's Bargain start? Well, it turns out that it was a mixture of truth and mystery, like many rumors. After his death, the elements of mystery led people to elaborate his story and romanticize certain details, which no one could dispute. One major element to the story is the fact that he does disappear for about six months in the year 1931. No one knows where he is. One night he returns to Robbinsville, Mississippi, and heads to a juke joint where Sunhouse and Willie Brown are playing. Sunhouse was a fellow blues musician in the Delta, whom Robert looked up to. I got a letter this morning, I do, ring it red. Say, hurry, hurry, the gal, you love is dead. I got a letter this morning, I say, hurry, ring it red. He also had a recording career and even lived a long and colorful life of his own, living up until the ripe old age of 86, passing away in 1988. 
He is known for his hyper-expressive style of singing. And there is no doubt he taught Robert valuable lessons about performing the blues. It's known that when Robert was a teenager, he would sit in on Sunhouse's performances at local juke joints, absorbing all he could and emulating it on his own guitar. So, after Robert is missing for six months, he returns to town one Saturday night. The book, Up Jump the Devil, vividly paints the scene for us. When Robert returned to Robbinsville, he heard that Sunhouse and Willie Brown would be playing at a nearby juke on a Saturday night. So he made plans to go show them his new skills. When he arrived, the two older, more established musicians were playing to a rowdy, drinking, carousing crowd. The shack was lit up like a holiday, with candles in all the windows and a drum full of flaming, kerosene-soaked wood providing heat for the men, standing outside smoking, drinking, and swearing up a storm. Robert could hear women shrieking and other men laughing, and through all the extra noise, he could hear Howes' slide guitar and Brown's second guitar accompaniment working the crowd to a frenzy. Robert approaches the doorway to the juke joint, pauses for a moment to survey the scene, for the next few minutes, the two musicians playing are the best that the crowd has ever seen or heard. But in steps Robert Johnson, like a man possessed, with a mission and a guitar strapped to his back. He pushes through the crowd and approaches the two older bluesmen who a year ago were still teaching him what the blues was. They look up at him and wonder why he's there just standing in front of them with a strange look in his eyes. They stop playing. The crowd goes silent. Sunhouse says, Well, boy, you still got a guitar, huh? What do you do with that thing? You can't do nothing with it. And Robert says, Let me have your seat for a minute. Sunhouse responds, All right, and you better do something with it, too. And he winks at Willie Brown. The crowd hushes. Robert sits down. Everyone's curious at what's about to take place. Robert starts playing. fast, full of feeling and skill. It's unlike anything anyone has ever seen or heard before. He blows the roof off the place. Later, Sunhouse would recall, so he sat down there and finally got started, and man, he was so good. When he finished, all our mouths were standing open. I said, well, ain't that fast. He's gone now. The blues, 
Robert would play a few more songs to entertain his new crowd, stealing the spotlight from the two bluesmen, legends in their own right, who were hired to play for that night. Sunhouse was so convinced of Robert's newfound greatness that he took him aside over the next few days and tried to give him advice. He tells him, Now Robert, you going around playing for these Saturday night balls, you have to be careful, because you mighty crazy about the girls. When you're playing for these balls and these gals get full of that corn whiskey and snuff mixed together and you be playing a good piece and they like it and come up to you and call you daddy, well, don't let it run you crazy. You're liable to get killed. Robert laughed it off, but Sunhouse clarified, you gotta be careful about that because a lot of times they do that and they got a husband or a boyfriend standing right over in the corner you get all excited over him, and you don't know what you're doing. You get hurt. Robert said okay. And after a few days, he was off on another train to play in another town and make his destiny. According to Sunhouse, before 1931, Robert was a subpar guitarist who could hardly hold a tune that interested a crowd. Here he is talking about that from the documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl? But he'd follow me and Willie around on Saturday night, yeah, Willie Brown. And every time we stopped for rest and sit a little guitar over in the corner or something and go out to catch air, you know, get the guitar and be trying to play it and be just noising the people, you know. <laughs> and the folks would come out and say, why don't y'all, some of y'all go in and make that boy put that, get that thing down, he running us crazy. Finally, he... Leffy run off from his father and mother. Then he went over in Arkansas someplace or another. Well, he was gone about six, eight months. So then he come back. And when he come back, me and Willie Brown was playing out there, and he walked in. He said, can I, can I hit a little too? I said, no, nah, don't come back with that, Robert. I said, you know the people don't, don't want to hear that racket. He said, definitely let them say what they want. I said, I want you to see what I like. But according to Sunhouse, Robert disappears in 1931. No one has seen or heard from him in six months. And when he returns that night, the scene we just described takes place. It's this story, filled with its implications of missing time, unexplained musical gifts, and a touch of mystery that invites the devil in. It's the result of this entanglement that gives rock and roll its first icon in Robert Johnson. He becomes idolized by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. He becomes a source of magical fascination for the members of Led Zeppelin, and he inspires Eric Clapton to play the blues. Can the man be separated from the myth? The human mind can't be at ease with a mystery. What could a musician do in a six-month span that takes him from being an amateur to a virtuoso? The mind has to fill in the gaps. That's, again, 
where the devil from hell steps in. But to our benefit and understanding, enough research has been done that we do finally know what happened in 1931 in that mystery gap of time. Around the start of that year, Robert Johnson goes looking for his real father. Julia finally tells him that his real father's name is Noah Johnson and that he stayed back in Hazelhurst when they moved. He goes on a journey, asking folks in Hazelhurst about Noah Johnson. He leaves no stone unturned and comes up empty. Instead, his path crosses with a man who ends up shaping him over the next six months into the Robert Johnson we know on those historic recordings. That man is Ike Zimmerman. It's not the devil who teaches Robert how to become a blues master. It's Ike Zimmerman. Ike isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ike never recorded any songs. And 50 years after Robert's death, when researchers asked Delta musicians about Ike Zimmerman, no one even recognized the name and never heard Robert talk about him. But the story goes that Robert was passing through a small town just south of Hazelhurst called Itz, I-T-S, which no longer exists. He was passing a juke joint, saw a crowd gathered, and heard someone playing inside. Robert's curiosity got the best of him, and he went in. The book, Up Jump the Devil, continues. The man who was playing guitar was better than anyone Robert had ever heard. He had to know this man, who happened to be one of the local road crew members. Loretta Zimmerman, one of Ike's three daughters, recalled Ike and Robert's first meeting, saying, My understanding is that Robert came back to Hazelhurst to find his daddy. You found my daddy instead. Unquote. The two hit it off quickly and connected over a mutual love of music and the guitar. Ike accepted Robert into his family, almost like an adopted son. Ike and his wife Ruth had seven children, one boy and six girls, all raised under one roof in a shotgun house, similar to the one where Robert was born 20 years earlier. Ike was a damn good guitarist and singer. He was about 13 years older than Robert, and he had a lot he could teach his new pupil. But the thing that must have really intrigued Robert about Ike is that he was writing his own songs, and a lot of them. He had a unique style of playing that alternated between finger-picking and playing bottleneck slide. His slide was homemade from a bone. Robert's own style was identical. He was also known for complex finger-picking, which no one else could emulate, and his distinct bottleneck slide technique. Ike Zimmerman was also a showman, knowing how to work a crowd, even playing behind his head, like Jimi Hendrix would do 70 years later. Ike invited Robert to stay with his family, and the two were inseparable. When Ike wasn't working on the roads, he would be teaching Robert everything he had mastered on guitar. I could only imagine how Robert must have felt at this time, to have gone out on a journey to seek out his biological father, come up empty-handed, and instead be accepted into the home of his new mentor like a son. He would see Ike juggling being a family man with a steady job who still played the blues. It must have provided Robert with a daydream for a future that he might one day live up to. But the one detail that made Ike Zimmerman 
that much more fascinating to Robert was Ike's preferred place to practice the blues, in the graveyard. The book Up Jump the Devil states, Ike and Robert may have played at home to entertain his family, but the place the older guitarist loved to play, the only place he said you could really learn to play the blues, was in a cemetery at night. Southern black belief in hoodoo, especially in rural regions, so close to New Orleans, was particularly accepted, since two-headed doctors or conjure men or women were often the only medical and psychological resources available. Ike subscribed to those beliefs, and he often claimed that he learned to play the blues while sitting on gravestones at midnight." Unquote. It's at the graveyard in the dead of night that Ike insisted Robert would truly learn to play the blues. The two of them would sit on large tombstones facing each other, and that's where Ike would administer his guitar lessons to Robert. That's what fills the unaccounted time of that mysterious six months. Robert didn't go to a crossroads to meet the devil for one night. Instead, he went to the Beauregard Cemetery every night for intense and deliberate practice. Practice between an attentive teacher and an apt pupil. It calls to mind the concept by the writer Malcolm Gladwell that 10,000 hours in a given domain is required for someone to achieve a level of mastery. And it can be likely assumed that during those six months of intense focus, Robert finally reached something like his benchmark 10,000 hours of playing. Perhaps he had already gotten close, maybe he was already at 6,000 hours throughout the 20 years of his life of playing and music engagement. But it was in those intense six months in the graveyard, spending countless hours learning and practicing, that you could argue he got there, something clicked, and when he came back to the rest of the world, he was a different musician. Ike believed that it was the spirits that provided the final magic ingredient of a great blues musician. Once you were in tune with the graveyard energies and could call it your second home, you could then channel the suffering, joy, and love of the spirit world into your music. Chapter 3 The Murder of Robert Johnson it's July 1938. Robert Johnson is visiting his family in Memphis, Tennessee. He is planning to leave soon for another trip, but he begins to complain of stomach pains to his half-sister Carrie. She insists he go to a doctor before leaving town. Fortunately, he does. The doctor diagnoses him with having a stomach ulcer, which is giving him stomach pains, and esophageal varices, which are giving him chest pains. It doesn't look good, and he advises Robert that he needs to quit drinking. This is advice that Robert has no plans to follow. Carrie is concerned, and she asks that he stay in Memphis, but Robert is anxious to get to his next destination, and he leaves for Greenwood, Mississippi. Robert settles into Greenwood, playing all the local juke joints, quickly making his name known around town as the songwriter of the hit song, Terraplane Blues. 
which had been released as a single the year before, and everyone has been listening to it. But with the notoriety, he also falls back into his old habits, heavy drinking and womanizing. The book, Up Jump the Devil, goes on. Unattached or attached, married or divorced, young or old, thin or heavy, women were Robert's main pursuit. In spite of their care, however, he always ended up abandoning them, recreating what had happened to him during his formative years with his mother, Julia. Fellow musician Johnny Shines attempted to explain his behavior. Since Robert was the particular person that he was, you would have had to say that his love life was very slack or open. You see, no woman really had an iron hand on Robert at any time. When his time came to go, he just went. I never could see how a man could be quite so neutral. I have seen him treated so royally that you would think he would never depart from his kind-hearted woman that would do anything in the world for him. But how wrong can you be? Sometimes he was too forward. Even men's wives were fair game for him. Unquote. One of these nights in Greenwood, Robert meets Beatrice Davis at a juke joint. Beatrice is the wife of Ralph Davis, a local barkeep at the Three Forks store on the weekends. Robert knew she was married. Maybe it was part of the thrill for him. Every Monday, Beatrice would tell her husband she was going into Greenwood to see her sister, but instead, she would spend the afternoon having sex with Robert in his room. Through a mutual friend, Ralph Davis finds out they're having an affair. He decides he's going to teach Robert Johnson a lesson he won't soon forget. On Saturday night, August 13th, 1938, Beatrice and Ralph Davis show up at a juke joint where Robert Johnson is performing. The party is hopping and everyone is enjoying themselves. Then, at around 11 p.m., Ralph gives Beatrice a jar of corn whiskey and tells her to give it to Robert Johnson during his break. He doesn't tell her that he has dissolved passagreen poison in the whiskey, a type of insecticide that can make someone violently ill if ingested. She hands him the whiskey, and before he opens it, a friend notices that the seal is broken. Robert's friend tries to slap the bottle out of his hand and tells him, never drink out of a bottle when the seal is broke. And Robert responds, and don't you ever slap another $7 bottle of whiskey out of my hand. During a break from his set, he uncorks it and starts drinking. The mixture that Davis gave him, under normal circumstances, wouldn't be fatal. The result most likely would have been nausea, confusion, vomiting, and gastrointestinal distress. But because Robert had, only a month earlier, been diagnosed with having an ulcer and esophageal viruses, the poison causes hemorrhages in his stomach and esophagus. The anxious crowd asks Robert to resume playing. He tries once, but something is wrong. They tell him to take another drink. They're around him, hollering, play, play, play. He tries again, and he says, I'm sick, I can't play. They lay him across a bed in the back room. The place gets quiet. After some time passes, he doesn't seem to be improving, so someone drives him back to his room in Baptist Town to sleep it off. Witnesses say 
He was howling like an injured wolf all night in pain. The book, Up Jump the Devil, recounts, Robert languished for two days in his room with severe abdominal pains, vomiting and bleeding from the mouth. Bleeding in the esophagus is extremely serious, with a death rate greater than 50% of cases, even with the attention of a doctor. Without medical attention, there was little or no chance of survival. In 1938, Greenwood had a colored hospital where Robert could have been treated, but he was in no condition to go there himself, and no one else wanted to be implicated in what might have eventually been seen as murder. Even if he were taken to the hospital, there was little medical help to save his life. His loss of blood alone could have been fatal." Unquote. Robert Johnson dies on August 16, 1938, at the age of 27 years old. Oh, death in the morning. Oh, death in the morning. Oh, death in the morning. Spread me over and another year. Well, death walked up to the Santa's gate. The bleeding have waited now a little too late. Your feet were not one hundred and two. Have a narrow chance of you ever put through. They cried, oh, death. Crying, oh, death in the morning, oh, death. Just bear me over in another year. He is buried under a large pecan tree in a small graveyard next to Little Zion Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. The book goes on. When Robert's half-sister Carrie heard of his death back in Memphis, she was terribly distraught, broken up, just torn apart, Anya Anderson recalls. Carrie immediately decided to go to Greenwood with Julia and Dusty and Robert's half-sister, Bessie Hines, with whom he and Virginia had lived in Bolivar County. She asked several of Robert's other friends to accompany them. Once in Greenwood, Carrie contacted the only black undertaker, Paul McDonald, who had one of his embalmers, Fletcher Jones, exhume Robert's body, remove it from the pine box the county provided, and place it in a proper casket. He was reburied in the same spot with family members and a preacher in attendance. Farewell. And when I 
So what happened? What's the lesson here? Did the devil come back for his due? Or did the lifestyle that Robert Johnson led, of heavy drinking and careless womanizing, finally catch up with him? Is there a difference? Maybe that's the cautionary tale the blues tells and retells, that when you lead that kind of life, you are, in a sense, dancing with the devil. And what happened to Ike Zimmerman, Robert's graveyard mentor, and Sunhouse, the fellow Delta musician who Robert outshined that one night? It turns out their stories had a second act. Both of them put the blues away in the second half of their lives, and devoted themselves, strictly, to playing and singing gospel music. You have to wonder what effect the tragedy of Robert Johnson had on Ike Zimmerman. He didn't get the closure of attending the funeral, as modest as it was, because Robert's first family never knew about Ike. In a sense, Ike lost an adopted son and a student he had poured all of his knowledge into. Maybe it was simply too much to bear to continue playing the blues like nothing had happened. Or maybe he kept playing it, pouring that feeling out in solitude. At the cemetery, on nights, he was thinking of Robert. Perhaps some nights, Robert was there playing it too. You may have noticed we have spent the entire episode avoiding talking about Robert Johnson's most famous song. The one song everyone always mentions as the irrefutable proof that Robert sold his soul at the crossroads. That song is, of course, Crossroad Blues. We couldn't talk about this legendary song until we understood Robert Johnson, the man, not the myth. This song has been misinterpreted for a hundred years. Knowing what we know now about Robert, we can give it one final look. He deserves that. And we can understand what it is he is really saying. Musically, this song is a paradox. Because it fits in the 12-bar blues style we talked about that's so common in Robert's songs, but he spontaneously seems to extend sections in unexpected ways, leaving you with this feeling of uncertainty and unpredictability. He fills in gaps between his singing as he extends his guitar phrases for an extra four beats here or eight beats there, where an average musician would have moved on to the next vocal line. His impeccable playing makes it sound natural, but still, the song itself violates the traditional structure of the blues. And instead, it places us in this uncertain territory. We don't know when we will get to the next chord until he decides. 
As an example, just try counting the bars. It's nearly impossible. Oddly enough, when you hear people cover this song, they, they lock the structure back into the traditional 12-bar blues. For example, check out the Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse version of Crossroads. You see what I mean? It becomes rigid, predictable. Compare it to Robert Johnson's version, and it sounds like it's being played by a machine. Not to knock Eric Clapton, I have the utmost respect for him, and I love that he still talks about Robert Johnson as an inspiration to him. But the point is, we have to assume this unbound structure in Robert's playing is a deliberate decision. He views it as an integral element, because he does it on both recorded takes. He's not just playing some songs for fun. He views these songs as compositions, the way Mozart or even Duke Ellington would. Then there's the subject matter. We mentioned earlier the significance of the crossroads in hoodoo tradition. It's considered a place of power, and the dirt from a crossroads is an essential ingredient in the spellwork of hoodoo. But Robert doesn't seem to mention anything like a broom or a specific folk magic object the way he does in his other songs. Well, that's where other historians make the mistake of saying he is talking about the devil as he does in so many other songs and so many other blues musicians do. But when you look at the lyrics of Crossroad Blues, the devil is not mentioned once. In fact, Robert mentions God instead. Right in the first verse, clear as day, I went to the crossroads, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy now, save poor Bob if you please. I went to the crossroads Pleading with God, could you really call this devil music? Robert's half-sister, Anya Anderson, writes in her book, Brother Robert, that throughout the 1930s, the sanctified church would set up a tent in the field across the street from Anya's home. Anybody could go in. And there was a local minister named Reverend Cross, who was actually part of Robert's extended family. Anya says that one time, her mother allowed her to go in to hear the service. She goes on. I heard Reverend Cross preach about the crossroads. He said, At the crossroads, you must make a decision. 
determine whether you're going to be Christian and believe. He got that from Jeremiah 6.16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Unquote. Again, we look at what Robert is trying to tell us. The problem is, our expectation that Robert is talking about selling his soul to the devil has been so ingrained in our collective unconscious that we just aren't hearing what he's actually saying. We are projecting a myth onto him. Search the meaning of this song online, and everyone says it is about selling your soul at the crossroads. No, it's not. They're wrong. What is Robert telling us? He's telling us about loneliness. Standing at the crossroad, I tried to flag a ride. Didn't nobody seem to know me. Everybody passed me by. Standing at the crossroad, I tried to flag a ride. Didn't nobody seem to know me. Everybody passed me by. He's telling us about despair. The sun going down, boy, dark gonna catch me here. I haven't got no loving, sweet woman that love and feel my care. Mm, the sun going down, boy, dark gonna catch me here. is sharing a deep and a vulnerable part of himself with us. He's afraid that, in his words, the dark is going to catch him. It's poetic and symbolic. And his last verse, which only appears on take two, You can run, you can run, tell my friend, boy Willie Brown, Lord, that I'm standing at the crossroad, babe. I believe I'm sinking down. Robert is using the crossroads as an evocative symbol. For what? A symbol for his own life. The crossroads is a liminal place where the energy flows, nothing stands still, everything and everyone is in transition. His entire life has been spent on the crossroads, endlessly in transition, neither here nor there, ever since he was two years old, without a father, moving from home to home, city to plantation, from tragedy to misfortune, from relationship to relationship, from town to town, woman to woman. The only steady constant in his life is the guitar on his back and the blues in his soul. 
everything else, it comes and goes on the crossroads. The Devil and Robert Johnson. That was a lot to take in. I hope you enjoyed the ride. For so many years, Robert was this phantom that people would project their theories and myths upon. I hope the research I have shared and the experience of listening to these two episodes has given you a picture of the man and not the myth. A picture that captures all his faults his ambitions, and his genius. Now, of all the things we covered, we actually didn't talk much about the incredible talent of Robert's playing. So let me make this clear. It cannot be overstated just how brilliant he was. No one was doing the things he was doing in the 1930s. And in many ways, no one ever has after him. There are a lot of people who emulate his style, there are even musicians who have devoted entire music careers to simply recreating Robert's sound and covering his songs. On a personal note, guitar was my first instrument, and I still play it nearly every day. Some of the original music you hear in this episode includes me playing the guitar. And with that, I really want to clearly express that whenever I pick up a Robert Johnson song to play it, it it's just another world, like another level of difficulty. He makes it sound so effortless, but to any guitarist who even attempts to play a Robert Johnson song, the initial reaction is something like, what the heck? How is this so hard? How he makes it sound so easy. And on top of that, he is singing in all these songs while he is playing. I mean, you take a song like Preachin' Blues, or Crossroad Blues, and as a guitarist, you just marvel at the agility and the skill being displayed. It's virtuosic in every sense of the word. That's why guitarists who first hear Robert's songs always have assumed there must be two guitars playing. He is able to weave rhythm guitar and lead guitar so seamlessly while singing that it leaves you in awe. It's actually the same effect that Jimi Hendrix has on both listeners and guitarists. You hear Hendrix and you think, oh, this must be within my difficulty range. Uh, then you pick it up and you realize uh, there's levels to this thing, you know? Basically, there's Jimi Hendrix and then there's everyone else. And that is a similar effect that Robert Johnson had on people after 1940. When those early rock musicians began listening to Robert, they placed him on an equal pedestal. There's Robert Johnson, and then there's everyone else. On another note, curiously, we have spent so much time extracting Robert from the devil, and yet it could not be done. I think we can safely assume he didn't sell his soul at the crossroads, 
but we still cannot separate Robert from the devil completely. There is the stigma he faced for being a blues musician, and then there is his embrace of the symbolism of the devil through his songs. Now, in my reflecting on this topic for the last two months, I've come to an understanding that I'd like to share on this. The devil is a stand-in for a certain way of living. When you say something like, the devil's got my man, it isn't literal, it's a metaphor. It could be interpreted as, my man is living a frivolous life of loose morals. The devil is one of the strongest and most universal archetypes in the human mind. As we learned from Carl Jung in the Red Book, check out episodes 11 and 12 of this podcast to learn more about that. And archetypes, they have this curious way of informing and manifesting themselves in our speech and representations of the world, because that's their function. An archetype is a deeply established thought structure that helps us to understand the inner complexity of our day-to-day -day life. And so I think that's the way to properly see Robert's relationship with the devil. It's clear he had an affinity for this archetype. And because of that, it led him down paths that eventually led him to his tragic end. It reminds me of that great lyric from Me and the Devil. It, it's just so haunting when he says, me and the devil was walking side by side. From this perspective, it kind of makes sense. Of all the characters Robert could have an affinity for, perhaps he saw the alienation and the loneliness of the devil reflected in his own life. In the process of preparing music for these two episodes, I came across so many amazing songs and musicians, especially you know, old musicians from these time periods. I feel like I'm taking a college blues course that I didn't know I needed, but I clearly needed. So I imagine that you, as a listener, might enjoy some of these gems too. I've made a full song list for both episodes, down to the minute and second in which each song appears, because there are plenty that appear that aren't Robert Johnson tunes. And so I've posted that on the Creative Codex subreddit. The list includes links to the YouTube videos of all those incredible songs. So just visit reddit.com and search up Creative Codex and you'll see that list there. If you enjoyed this episode and what we are doing here at Creative Codex, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, where you can join other supporters and any tier level of support gets you access to various perks. From as little as $1, you gain access to exclusive supporter-only creativity tip episodes. And from $10 and up, you receive a downloadable copy of the Creative Codex soundtrack album, which features all your favorite music from the show so far. Think of it like background music to spur your own daydreams and creative pursuits. You can find all this on patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's P-A-T-R eon.com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n If you are dying to say something about this episode, or if you have a question, please head over to our brand new subreddit. Just head to reddit.com that's two d's, r-e-d-d-i-t 
and search Creative Codex. Please join the community we have over there. It's a wonderful place to talk about creativity and I'm excited to answer any questions people have about these topics we are exploring. I want to thank all my Patreon supporters. You make this podcast possible. I'm hoping to start putting some money aside to do advertising so we can share this show with a larger audience. Thank you to Tim K, Blake Huggins, Vero, Jay Booth, Anudi Valerio, Jay Stacks, MA53N, and DVM. You guys rock. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for all your support. This is Creative Codex, and I am MJ Dorian. Until next time, go listen to some devil music. Thank you.